Can you just imagine what that day is going to be like when every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be gathered around the throne, those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? It's going to be powerful. And maybe just a bit loud. <laughs> because we will be rejoicing unhindered in our Savior. So this morning, let me ask you, why in the world are you here? As you sit, pondering, maybe awkwardly, <laughs> you might think, well, Dave, isn't it kind of obvious? There's this whole church thing going on. Not sure if you noticed, Dave. But maybe think about it another way. Ask yourself, what is motivating me to be here this morning? That can be a harder question to answer because you have to start to wrestle with your individual heart. We have to try to be honest with our heart motivations, and that can be uncomfortable and at times unsettling. When we try to answer what's motivating us, we find answers like, well, I was told to be here, like some of my children were this morning. Or you might find, well, I have to be here because I've got a responsibility to take care of. Or maybe I'm supposed to be here because this is Sunday and this is what you do, right? Or maybe I need to be here because of what's going on in my life, or I want to be here because I want to worship my Savior with brothers and sisters in Christ. You may have many of those thoughts running through your heart and mind this morning, and if you're like me, it's probably a jumbled mess of several of those. I want to have the right heart motivation, but how do I do that? As we've been studying through the Sermon on the Mount together, we've been learning what a citizen of God's kingdom looks like. And Jesus keeps bringing us back to our heart. In the Beatitudes, He shows the overall character of a citizen of God's kingdom, someone who recognizes that he or she is spiritually bankrupt, but who receives a righteousness not their own and who is transformed into a child of God. Then, as children of God, He shows us that we are salt and light in this world as we bring God glory through the good works that we do. We can do this because Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament law, and so He frees us to live beyond that law. You see, God is transforming our hearts so that while we recognize that murder is wrong, we see that our anger 
is truly the root that we need to focus on. He's working so that we start to value others as complete persons, both physically and spiritually, so lust loses its power over us. He's working and remaking our hearts so that we value marriage as His sacred covenantal creation. He's working so that others never doubt our honesty, so that our mercy motivates us to help even those who take advantage of us, and so that our love reflects the love that He has shown to us. In short, He's transforming our hearts to be like His. And so laws don't direct our lives, being like our Father does. And God is always better than the best laws. And that's just chapter 5. Today, as we continue on in the Sermon on the Mount, we come to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and we find a slight shift in what Jesus is challenging us with. The heart is still at the center, but he begins to bring a focus on what actions citizens of God's kingdom do. What does living like a transformed citizen look like in the various aspects of everyday life? Remember, our good works are to bring glory to the Father. But Jesus knows our hearts. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows the jumble of motivations that we struggle with. So as he makes the shift in chapter 6, he points out a reality that we each need to be on guard against. Jesus points out to us here one deceptive danger to living as a citizen of God's kingdom. Notice Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Take heed that you do not do your righteous acts before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will Himself reward you openly. As I was studying this passage for this Sunday, um, it, it kind of became clear to me that um, I needed to step aside for a moment and just give an important side note, which involves an unintended lesson on Bible translation. Okay? So you're probably like, oh, Dave, that just sounds way too technical and boring. Okay? All right. Hold on to the happy balloon. Okay? Hang on with me. That's why I put it there. Just, it won't take that long. But it's important to this passage. You may have noticed, particularly if you have a King James Bible or a New King James Bible, that when I read verse 1, I read righteous acts, not charitable deeds. So, Dave, why did you read righteous acts? See, in Matthew 6.1, we find a difference in manuscripts. Some manuscripts have L.A. masunane, alms or charitable deeds. 
Others have dikaiosunane instead, which is righteousness. So there's a difference there. So you have to ask the question, why is this important? It affects how we understand Jesus' primary teaching here. If his primary focus is practicing your charitable deeds, then verse 1 is part of Jesus' teaching about giving to the needy. It's just three chunks, giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. But if Jesus' primary focus is practicing your righteousness, then verse 1 is the overall lesson, and giving, praying, and fasting become examples of that lesson. See the difference in focus, difference in structure? So, your ears may have perked up when I said, well, wait, there's two different words in different Greek manuscripts. Does this affect how we can trust the Bible? Because you just said, Dave, there's two different words. This is actually an argument that some who hold to a King James-only position, meaning they would say the King James Bible is the only inspired translation of the Bible, so it's the only one that you should use. Side note, there is no inspired translation of the Bible. God did not inspire people to translate. He inspired the original authors to write His Word. So, wait, but doesn't this affect the reliability, how we can trust the Bible? Well, one, no, it doesn't, because as you study the Bible, you find that giving to the needy and not doing righteous acts based on the approval of other people are both taught in other parts of Scripture. They're taught throughout Scripture. These are not new doctrines. They are both Bible truths. The truth of the Bible is not being undermined by this. Secondly, no, it doesn't underline, uh, undermine how we can trust the Bible, because when you look in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, those translators often used both words, charitable deeds and righteousness, interchangeably when they came to the Hebrew word righteousness. It, it would be a bit like us, we're saying, wow, that's amazing, or wow, that's awesome. Very similar in how we would use it. So, Dave, why did you choose righteous acts? Well, dikaiosunane, righteousness, appears in most manuscripts. Charitable deeds in verse 1 does not. That gives it some weight. Also, righteousness in Matthew 6, 1 ties back to Matthew 5, verse 20, where Jesus said, I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds, there's the word, the righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So using it here ties to the idea that Jesus already is teaching about how a citizen of God's kingdom lives, the truth that righteous action is a key part of the Christian's life. Chapter 5, verse 16. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the book of James. Show me your faith by your works. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, another key thing that points to the fact that Jesus is, is shifting in what his focus is, is that he uses you plural in 6.1, but changes to you singular 
in chapter 6, verse 2. So let me illustrate. Chapter 6, verse 1, to, to give the southern rendition. It says, Take heed that y'all do not do y'all's righteous acts before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, y'all have no reward from y'all's Father in heaven. Here's why that's important. He's addressing the crowd. He's giving a lesson, and then when he comes to verse 2, he says, therefore, when you, Bob, do charitable deeds, when you give to someone in need, he's bringing it down to a personal application. It's important for us to see that change. Okay, still holding on to the happy balloon? Okay, okay, you're there. This is something that translators wrestle with. They think through. And it's an intentional process. And you know what? It doesn't undermine Scripture. It actually gives us greater confidence because we can better understand how God's Word has been understood by believers throughout the ages of time. So, I understand chapter 6, verse 1, as the overall lesson that Jesus is teaching for chapter 6, verse 1 through 14, with giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting being examples to help us better see that one deceptive danger to living as a citizen of God's kingdom, living as a citizen of God's kingdom, okay? What does that truly look like? Ready for it? Here's the danger. It's dangerous to live out your transformed life in order to be seen by others. Again, notice what Jesus says in Matthew 6.1. Take heed that you do not do your righteous acts before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, Jesus shows us how important this is because he starts right out with a command where he says, take heed, beware, watch out. This isn't just some other fact that he's giving. It's important and integral to living as a citizen of God's kingdom. And he shows that the danger is living out every day Christian actions because of how others will respond. That's why he says, do not do your righteous acts before men. Jesus doesn't have the big leap of faith type of actions in view here. No, no. Instead, he focuses on the expected, routine, righteous acts that a believer would carry out. We see that because of the three examples that he gives, giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. Those three actions would have been commonplace for Jewish people who would have been considered to be following the Lord. It was just assumed that they would do this. Today, they would be things like going to church on Sunday, putting something in the offering plate, praying before a meal, those type of actions. The actions that you probably don't even think twice about doing, let alone why you're doing it. Jesus' warning here helps us realize that it's much easier to allow what others think 
to influence our everyday actions than we might realize. Again, think about, why do you come to church on Sunday? Well, because that's what I've always done. Maybe since I was a baby, right? That, that was me. That's just what I've always done. Well, consider, is human tradition, is it motivating you more than a relationship with God? How about this? What moves you to respond in a non-Christ-like way to a political figure or issue? Maybe to respond with mocking or talking about how worthless that person is. You say, well, but, but Dave, that's what all the Christian friends around me, how, that's how they talk. Is it possible that human opinion is motivating you more than Christ's value of that person? What motivates you as a parent to strive to have perfect kids? Dave, that's what I've seen at church. Man, that family over there, they just always have it together. Or that class that I took, that's kind of what it set up, that if I did all these things just the right way, then my kids would turn out just the right way. Is it possible that human desire or thinking, human desire for peace, is motivating you more than engaging the heart of a needy sinner like God does? I have to say that this is something that God has graciously stretched my heart in um, over the, particularly recent years, probably about 10. Um, I was the quiet kid growing up. I wanted to please people. I wanted you to be happy with me. And so, in this stage of my life, God has graciously given me kids who are loud, full of energy, and sometimes more energy than I know what to do with. And I can feel the pressure to have kids that act right, sit still, know the Bible answer, who love to go to church, because that's what good Christian kids are supposed to do, right? That's what's expected. Now, don't get me wrong. Kathy and I desire those things for our kids. We point them to God. We teach them about God. But I can allow my human expectation to motivate how I respond to them when they're not acting right. And so I get frustrated or upset, and then I don't react with consistency or patience or grace. And as I've struggled with that, God has challenged me with over and over with this thought. He says, Dave, when have I ever treated you like that as your heavenly father? When have I ever reacted with impatience or shortness or just looking out for, I just want peace? When have I ever done that? You know, if he had, I would not be standing here today. God has responded with more patience and grace than I should ever get. Now, he addresses my sin. He's working. He's growing me. But he never does it out of anger or seeking his own peace. And in doing that, he shows me how I need to respond and engage my kids as a father. 
It's so easy to let what others think motivate our everyday actions as believers, whether that's by something someone says to us, our own assumption of what someone else will think, or just the cultural expectation, because that's what's always been done. It's so easy. That's why Jesus warns us to pay attention to this. It's so easy to let happen, and it has significant impact on our future reward with God. Notice how Jesus shows us that living out our everyday actions because of how others will respond affects our future reward with the Father. What does He say at the end of verse 1? If you're doing actions to be seen by others, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, it's important to note here, one, Jesus is not trying to give us like a, 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 a a score sheet of how many crowns you get, right? So, hey, I didn't blow up at my kids, five crowns. Hey, I brought flowers to my wife, three crowns. If it was roses, it would have been four, but at least you got three. That's not his point, okay? Also, it's important to note that the reward is not relationship with the Father. The forgiveness of your sin, your eternal hope, that's not what he's talking about. Jesus Christ paid the punishment for that. That is certain, The reward, he says, is from the Father. That has the idea of with the Father, in His presence. You're already there, and there's this reward that's given. It's similar to how Paul challenged the Corinthians, which you may remember, the Corinthians were a group of believers very focused on what others thought of them. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, According to the grace of God, which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. So he's talking about, I've shared the gospel, people have gotten saved, churches have been started. Now others are building on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. That includes you and me. As we build up the church, as we build up other believers that's who the church is, as we build others up, we need to take heed. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is." If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. This is important. And this is why Jesus is talking about it in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6, because here's one of those things that affects this reward. Paul again challenges the Corinthians with who they are seeking to please in 2 Corinthians 5. It says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Who are we seeking to please? 
Because it's dangerous to live out your transformed life in order to be seen by others. Do you start to get a sense why Jesus focuses on the heart motivation behind our everyday actions here? Not only will our heart motivation affect what we do, it will affect whether our actions have eternal value. If you're like me, you probably start to get worried at this point because you know how jumbled your heart can be. But let me encourage you. That's why the gospel is for every person at every moment. Because you may be here today and you have never turned from your sin. You've never put your trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sin. There's good news. You can do that because of Jesus. He's paid your punishment. And if you will just give up on what you're trying, what you're trusting in, and turn to Him, trusting that His death on the cross, His resurrection paid your punishment, He will give you forgiveness that never ends. But maybe you're here today and you have already put your trust in Jesus. And you know that you struggle with allowing human opinion or thinking to motivate you. There's good news. Because you can run to Jesus, your Savior, asking for Him to help change your heart in that area. And you don't have to come to Him out of fear or guilt. You can come boldly to His throne of grace, asking for His help, which He freely gives. He wants to help us. Saturday morning, I was hopping in the van to drive over here to kind of do some more preparation for, for the, the service. And I was getting in the van, and I was thinking about some stuff about the service, some elements of the service, and God just pricked my mind. He said, Dave, you are thinking about that by what people in the congregation would want. I was like, you're right. God, you're right. So what do you and I need to be on the lookout for? What does the danger of living out your transformed life look like in everyday life? That's the purpose of these examples. You see, Jesus shows us more clearly what it looks like through the example of giving to the needy. First thing He shows us helps us see, is that it looks like drawing attention so people glory in you. What does he say in verse 2? Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Now, first off, Jesus assumes that a citizen of God's kingdom gives to someone in need, okay? He's not trying to make that point that this is something you need to do. He assumes you're doing it as a follower of Christ. The goal, though, in this action, in his example, the goal is to get attention. What does he say? Don't sound a trumpet before you. Now, it's a bit of hyperbole. He's using like an extreme example to show his point We don't know in history that there was any type of of, um, 
tradition to blow a trumpet before somebody gave a gift. But he's saying, don't draw attention to it. I was uh, reminded uh, of a time when I was in seminary. The seminary would host um, friend of the seminary days. And people who would give to the seminary, pray for the seminary, just cared about it, they could come, interact with the students, sit in the classes. And I remember this one time I was sitting in my class and uh, the professor allowed the folks visiting to introduce themselves. And this dear lady who, who had been a gracious supporter of the seminary, as she introduced herself, she, she said, my husband and I, we bought all the tables and chairs in the seminary classrooms. I don't know what was going on in her heart. It sure felt awkward to me, though. Are we trying to get attention by what we do? And when we're doing that, we're trying to draw attention to someone who's not the real you. Right? What does Jesus say? Don't sound a trumpet like the hypocrites do. Of course, one, he's got the scribes and Pharisees in his mind still very clearly. But the idea of a hypocrite was someone who, who was an actor and they would change masks to play different roles. So do you have an at-work mask where you would never talk that way or joke about those same things at church on Sunday that you do at work? Do you have a Sunday morning service mask? Do you have an at-home mask? Do you have a I'm volunteering at church mask? That you act differently because you want others to think of you a certain way. You're trying to draw attention, but you're drawing it to someone that you're not really. Because the reason is to get glory. What does he say? The hypocrites do this that they may have glory from men. The word glory here comes from the same root as glorify back in chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It's the same idea, but what's different? Who gets noticed? Who gets the glory? Another dear lady uh, that I remember, I remember hearing a story about her that she was talking with someone uh, at church and another lady, and this lady shared with her that she had found it difficult to talk to this woman, mature Christian lady, but she had found it difficult to talk to this woman because of how dressed up she was. It intimidated her. So you know what that dear Christian lady did? She started wearing jeans to church. Who gets noticed? Who gets the glory? Myself, I like to sing. If you've been here any time, you may have noticed that. I've sung in choirs. I've sung in groups. Sometimes I do solos. I just, I enjoy it, singing to the Lord. And I think I have a pretty good voice. Thank my parents for that. They were both singers. But 
If you've ever noticed, sometimes my voice will randomly crack when I sing. Do you know what that is? That is God graciously reminding me, Dave, don't seek the glory. Because I enjoy singing. And when I'm up here and I'm before people and I'm singing and it's going good, sometimes my heart can start to go to the wrong place. So every so often, sometimes I'm practicing, sometimes I'm singing, it's Dave, don't seek the glory. Because when you do, that's all the reward you ever get. What does he say? The end of verse 2. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. And the words, the wording that he uses there, it's the idea of they have their reward in full. Their desire to get noticed was fulfilled. And that's the only fleeting reward they will ever get. Even though God wants so much more for them. So it looks like drawing attention so people glory in you. Instead, it should look like deflecting attention so people glory in God. What does he say in verses 3 and 4? But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will Himself reward you openly. The goal here is to intentionally not get attention. He says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Again, it's some hyperbole. It's an extreme example to help us understand what he's emphasizing because how in the world do you do that? You can't just leave your right hand behind, right? <laughs> okay? I mean, you tuck it inside your coat, zip it up, right? No, he's emphasizing the intentional commitment that we need to have to say, God, I want you to have the glory. Because this isn't about you. What does he say? Verse 4, that your charitable deed may be in secret. Probably one of the best examples that I've ever seen of this was several years ago, uh, my wife Kathy broke her leg um, several weeks, a few weeks before our youngest son Ethan was born. And many people from the church came and graciously and sacrificially helped us. I mean, we I don't know how we would have survived without it. And if you were one of those people, again, let me say thank you for ministering to us in that way. But when it comes to secrecy, I remember one day walking out to the mailbox to get the mail, and I found an envelope in there with our name on it. There was nothing to identify who left it. There was, uh, I never heard a car pull up. They were pretty good. They were pretty sneaky about how they did it. But someone had anonymously and secretly left $400 in that envelope to help meet our needs. I don't know who did it. No one's ever come around and said, hey, uh, did you find an envelope in your... No one was looking for attention. But here's the thing. Jesus shows us here 
those type of actions, that type of focus is never overlooked. Do you notice what he says at the end of verse 4? It says, your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. It struck me that I think a key in all of this struggle becomes clear for us here because we all want someone to see us, don't we? We want someone to value what we're doing. Jesus starts back there in chapter, uh, in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, don't do your righteous acts to be seen by others. Why do the hypocrites do what they do in verse 2? To get glory from men. This, this element of being seen comes up over and over again in each one of the examples. And in each of the examples, Jesus over and over again gives us the truth that transforms our motivation. He says, your Father does see. And notice, He says, know that your Father. He doesn't say God, who knows everything. He doesn't say Lord, who's in charge of everything. He says Father, personal, relational. Your Father sees. Trust your Father that He sees what you do even when it's in secret. When you changed your baby for the fourth time this morning because there just had to be one more spit up before you came to church, or maybe when you pulled in the parking lot, when you changed your baby, your Father sees that, lovingly serving that little one. When you take that, that friend out to eat because he or she is struggling, maybe not a lot of people know about it, but you just want to go. You want to say, maybe you don't even know the words, but you say, hey, I'm praying for you. Your father sees that. When you support a missionary who is going to share the gospel with people who have never heard it, your father sees that. As we learn to truly trust our Father, when we trust that our Father sees what we do in our everyday lives, it frees us so that human opinion does not motivate our transformed lives. Now, please know, this is not some magic truth that removes all pressure of human opinion from what we do. This is something that daily we need to ask God to help us be sensitive to His Spirit about. Because it will sneak back into our thinking and then come out in our actions. All it took was like two seconds in my van Saturday morning. <laughs> Snuck right in. And when God does prick our mind, when He says, what's motivating you there? Be quick to ask His help to show you what is. And if you have to say that your motivation is human opinion, confess that before God. Ask Him what motivation glorifies Him, and then act accordingly. And you know what you may find? You may still do the exact same action. But how you approach that action, what you're seeking out of that, may change. And you know what? 
you may even find some fun ways to intentionally keep those things secret. When you hear of someone in need, secretly go out, buy some groceries, drop them on their doorstep, knock on the door, and then peel out, right? Better yet, borrow someone else's car and then peel out, right? Especially if it's a sports car. Now, certainly, use wisdom in this. But that's the freedom we truly have as citizens of God's kingdom. So, let me challenge you with this one thought. In your everyday actions, don't draw attention so you get the glory. Deflect attention so God does. Let's pray. Father, This is something that can be so hard for us to see. Again, it it can sneak in almost sometimes unaware. But Lord, thank You that as citizens of Your kingdom, as those who've put their trust in Jesus Christ, You want us to see that. You want to change that in us so that When there are those times that it comes up where it's opinion or human thinking that's directing us, that's affecting us, we would say, no, that's not what, that's not is what's supposed to direct me. My Father is. You are God. Lord, I pray for each of us here, that this week you would help our hearts to be sensitive to your Spirit in the everyday things, the in and outs, the things that we maybe don't regularly think about. God, where human opinions creeping in to motivate us, would you point that out and help us be willing to confess it and submit ourselves to you? thank you that we don't do this alone and we don't do this without hope because we truly have been purchased, redeemed by Jesus Christ, and that is sure. We do thank you and love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.